Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. One of the signs that you're on the path from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity is when you face the gap between your stated values and your lived values. The gap between who you aspire to be, who you portray yourself to be, and your actual life choices. The gap between how you experience yourself and how other people experience you. The gap between what you tell yourself is important and what matters most and what your life shows is important and matters most. About eight years ago, there was a research group, Young and Rubicum, and they did a research study that they dubbed Secrets and Lies. And they presented 16 different values to respondents and asked them to rank the values in order of importance, like what is most important to you. So they did this study in Brazil and China and in the United States. And I'll show you the results of the top five values in the United States according to what people said was most important to them. So this is their stated value. Their stated values, the number one thing is helpfulness, to be helpful. Second is choosing my own path. Third is finding meaning in life. Fourth is environmentalism. Fifth is success. And on and on. And I've included the very last value, wealth. Now, the researchers used more than one methodology for this study. So not only did they use the traditional survey model where they just ask people, to rank the values, like what's most important to you, they used a method called implicit association testing. Uh, It's where images and response times are used to reveal what's going on in your subconscious. And it shows the difference between your deliberate preferences, or we could say your stated values, and your just your automatic attitudes, like your lived values. So what you say you want versus what you naturally gravitate towards and are motivated by. So compare these two lists. The second list is the implicit association testing, uh, and it shows that what people actually gravitate towards and what they are motivated by, number one is maintaining security. Number two is sexual fulfillment. Number three is honoring tradition. Number four is environmentalism. Number five is building wealth. And the very last one on the list, number 16, is helpfulness. So what people say 
and what people feel are definitely two different things. Uh, just a couple things to notice here. Uh, it's interesting that wealth was stated to be the least important value, if you look at the first list there. But the second test, the implicit association test, revealed that wealth actually comes in at number five. It's in the top five of our values. And what's particularly fascinating is helpfulness. So people in the U.S. listed helpfulness as their top value. But guess where helpfulness ranks on the implicit association testing? Like, what do we gravitate towards? What are we motivated by? Well, helpfulness comes in dead last. So what we say is most important to us. And what actually turns out to be important, those are two different things. There can be quite a gap between our stated values, who we aspire to be, who we hope to be, what we say is most important, and our lived values, who other people experience us to be, what we actually show is important. Now, if I had you rank a list of 16 values, it's unlikely that you would feel crummy about how you prioritize the 16 values. Because in general terms, nearly everyone believes that their choices are good and reasonable. And so everyone, yeah, I give you a list of 16 values, everyone's going to order them a little different. But in general, most people would feel okay about how they answered. But you might start to squirm a little more if a researcher asked to do a reverse engineering assessment of your values and your beliefs by just looking at your life. Like, what if they put aside what you say you believe and what you say is most important? And they did a life assessment where they said, okay, let's figure out your values and your beliefs simply by looking at what you're into and how you spend your time and how much time do you spend on your phone and what are you scrolling and what are you watching on TV and how do you manage your money and what do you spend your money on and where and when do you give and what relationships do you invest in and how do you invest in them and who or what do you view as a threat and what do you spend time worrying about, trying to avoid or preparing for and what proactive steps do you take and what reactive steps do you take and where and when do you volunteer and who are you serving and how do you handle your sexuality and what habits and rhythms and disciplines and spiritual practices are a part of your life and what's your sleep and diet like and what excites you, and makes you giddy and how do you handle your emotions, how do you cope, who frustrates you and how do you handle it, how do other people experience you. Now if a researcher took all that data and they just reverse engineered your values and beliefs, what would they say you value and believe? Where would the gap show up between what you say 
you believe and value and what you do between your stated values and your lived values. Now the truth is, part of being human is having gaps between what we say and what we do, between the story we tell ourselves and the life we actually live, between what we say matters and what we actually give our time and energy to, between how we experience ourselves and how other people experience us. It's pretty common. So a discussion question, name some of the events or factors that can bring awareness of the gap between our stated values and our lived values. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube or uh, catching this on the podcast, I'd encourage you to just take a moment, even if you're alone, to reflect on that, think on that. If you're listening with someone else, chat with them about it. Part of what attracted people to Jesus was that he did not have this gap. His stated values and his lived values were the same. No matter who you are and what you are all about, we all like to tell ourselves that our choices are good and reasonable and we can justify them and uh, they make sense to us given our circumstances. So we all like to tell ourselves we're on a good path. And we like to tell ourselves that we hold the right position, that we are doing what we are doing for reasons that can be justified and reasons that make sense. The scripture that we're looking at today resounds with a little different message. It says, you are on the path to spiritual maturity when that story you're telling yourself or others starts to line up with what your life actually shows, when your stated values and your lived values are the same. So here it is. It's James chapter 2, verse starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of y'all says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but y'all do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Y'all see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the breath is dead, so faith without action is dead. The person in James' example claims to want good things for someone who is penniless and destitute without proper clothing or shelter in a cold winter. And so they say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. This is their stated value. They wish they lived in a world where anxious people found community and peace and where hungry people had food, and where destitute people found warmth and shelter. Nearly every single person I know would agree with that stated value. Everyone wants that. But their lived value shows up differently. James says, what if they do nothing about their, the physical needs of this person? James asks, what good is that? See, James has already made it clear that love for neighbor is the royal law of King Jesus and discrimination is incompatible with faith and that our response to the poor, marginalized, vulnerable is the test of the authenticity of our faith. And now James is making it clear that faith and action cannot be separated. Faith without action he says it's like a decomposing human corpse. It has all the right parts, but it's gross and stinky and gets absolutely nothing done. It's completely useless. Some Christians create a false dichotomy between faith and action as if they can be separated. They fall into the trap of either-or thinking instead of recognizing the both-and message of Scripture. So they get hung up with this passage on, well, it's justification by faith alone, as if James is claiming that we're justified by action or works alone. They pit James chapter 2 against Romans chapter 4. They pit James against the Apostle Paul. They pit faith against action. It's a false dichotomy. James is making it clear that faith and action cannot be separated. Faith without action is a body without breath. It's a stinky corpse. Now, the most recent findings by the Pew Research Center say that currently about a third of all Christians become disaffiliated with the church before they turn 30 years old. So sadly, one of the main reasons that people walk away from the church is because they've witnessed far too much of what is called faith, but they look at it and to them it feels cold. It feels like a dead corpse to them. It's stinky to them and smelly and gross and getting nothing done. And it's not changing life for anyone in the community. And so they look at that and they say, this feels useless. Faith gets turned into private, individual views. 
it gets turned into right beliefs and orthodoxy and creeds and statements of faith and proper rituals and doctrinal correctness and saying saying the right thing. Like, let's paint a pretty picture of how we wish the world was. And for many people, the idea of faith is equated with a culture war and us versus them. And so when someone says they came to faith, what a lot of people hear is, uh, oh, it's like mental agreement, mental assent. It's, I agree with this certain set of beliefs. Uh, I prayed a certain prayer. I'm claiming to agree with a certain set of thoughts. And often those who walk away from the church, it's because they just can't stomach a faith that isn't actively reaching out to the most vulnerable and isn't making space for those who are different and feel threatening. They, they long for a Christianity that's committed to deepening love for others and seeking their best, and they've grown weary of a Christianity that's obsessed with forcing other people to conform to personal beliefs by any means necessary. I think if James was alive today, he would probably join these people in walking away, not from faith, not from the Christian community, but away from a faith that is defined as private individual beliefs alone. Now, remember, in the ancient world, if you ask the average person on the street, what does faith mean? 99% of them would say it's a willingness to bind yourself to a person or a group. It's the you can count on me factor. It's loyalty, allegiance, reliability, social concord, relationships. Whether you're putting that faith in, it's the you can count on me factor with God, that you're saying, God, you can count on me, or you're telling your neighbor, you can count on me. So we think about Jesus. He links these two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can count on me, God. And love your neighbor as yourself. You can count on me, neighbor. And together, this is faith. It's Faith runs in two different directions. For those who try to build their faith out of right words, but they leave people marginalized, oppressed, excluded, and suffering, James simply points to the demons who believe in one God. Uh, now, that might not make sense, so let's explain it a little bit. So, James is referencing this ancient Jewish creed. It was called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And pious Jews would recite the Shema every single day. It was a really big deal that the Lord is one, because the tribes and cultures all around Israel believed in many gods. And so the defining characteristic of the people of Israel was, no, there's one God. So the historic culture war of the people of Israel was that there's one God. And it's what differentiated them from the vast majority of other tribes and cultures. It was the us versus them. And, and down through the centuries... The belief in many gods was like this virus that kept seeping into the people of Israel and the 
the prophets called it idolatry. The first of the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other gods. And so this was the core of Israel's culture war, the boundary line between us and them. It was the core of their orthodoxy, the core of their identity, right belief, doctrinal correctness. There is one God. James says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So James is not disagreeing with this ancient creed, but even the demons believe this. In the ancient world, the demons were understood to be this antithesis of serving God. They opposed God. They wanted to destroy humanity and creation. And so James is pointing out that even they hold the creed, the orthodoxy, right belief, there's one God. And so what he's pointing out is, guys, it is possible to have all the right beliefs, to have the right creed, the right orthodoxy, to say all the right things about the way you wish the world was. That's possible. And to simultaneously be the antithesis of serving God, humanity, creation. So. A discussion question for you. Uh, if you're catching this on YouTube or on the podcast, maybe you'll just reflect or chat with someone that you're with. Here it is. Think of a time when your faith felt vibrant and alive. And think of a time when your faith felt cold and dead. Does your own experience resonate with what James is saying about faith being dead without action and it's okay to disagree I'm just genuinely curious when you think about your own experience does it resonate with what James is saying so take a moment reflect on that James goes on to draw from two vastly different characters to expand our idea of the types of people who actually exemplify a living faith, Abraham and Rahab. So Abraham, he comes from the place of highest honor. He's a man in a culture that revered men, patriarchy. He's a hero. He's the patriarch of patriarchs. He's the father of the Jewish nation. He was unable to have children for a long time, but promised by God that he would be given as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. And then when he was given a son, it felt like God gave him a contradiction. He was given this son who he is called to give up. He receives this call to practice the pagan ritual of child sacrifice. Uh, he thinks he's being asked to lose the son he loves. And so you can go read the whole story. The, the scriptures there, Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, will capture that story for you. Abraham somehow leaned into this situation that must have felt like 
not only a disconnection from his son, but a disconnection from God, the God he thought he knew, a disconnection from every promise, every dream for his future, a disconnection from himself, he could have clung to his orthodoxy. He could have argued with God about what God had already said. But Abraham was willing to let go of something that he thought he had been given. And this action is named as faith. Rahab, that's the, the other example, she comes from a place of deepest shame. She comes from the very bottom of society. She's the last person you would ever expect to be held up as an example of faith. She's a prostitute in a world where women often didn't become prostitutes for the money. They became prostitutes because their body was their only means of survival left. They'd often been kicked to the curb by men who didn't want them, and now they were left without a safety net in their culture, in their society. And so Rahab is a woman in a patriarchal culture, and James holds her up as an example because of her own actions, not because of her connection to any man. She's a foreigner in a culture that's on the chopping block. She comes from outside of the people of Israel, and she's the classic picture of someone caught in the middle of a culture war. Because any way you slice it, Rahab was going to lose. If she helped the people of Israel, if you want to read that story in Joshua 2 and then Joshua 6, if she helped the people of Israel, she was going to lose her city and her people, her neighbors, her friends, her culture, her way of life. But if she helped her city, she would probably still lose her life and her relatives and her family and her neighbors. So she stood to lose either way. She hadn't confessed any of the creeds. She knew next to nothing about Israel's religious language, anything about right belief. And her laudable actions in the story are hospitality and lying, of all things. Lying. Rahab's action was that she's willing to open her heart. She's willing to open her space, her home, her life to people who are vastly different from her and were threatening to her. And so James uses... James uses these two examples coming from opposite places in society to shake us loose from this idea that the best examples of faith come from the top of society rather than from the bottom and all in between. He's trying to shake us loose of this idea that active faith only looks like one thing. James is trying to get us to embrace a faith that truly embraces our neighbors with all of their quirks and oddities and weirdness, ickiness, contradictions, needs. This is the royal law of King Jesus. It's not to wish people weren't anxious. It's to be with them and for them in their anxiety. It's not to wish people weren't hungry, but to actually hand them a cup of coffee scone, a casserole, help them find a way to feed themselves. Not to wish people weren't destitute, but 
help them find and be able to afford a living space, find a sustainable income. Jesus told the following story to the most religious people of his day with the very best of the best of stated values. He says, what do you think? There's a man who had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go out and work in the vineyard. And the first son says, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Go out, work in the vineyard. And I, he answered, I will. But he didn't go. So Jesus says, which of the two did what his father wanted? And these religious bigwigs say, well, it's the first. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. John, he's talking about John the Baptist, came to show you the way of justice, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So here we are, with all of our stated values and all of our lived values and all of our emotions about that gap. There's a whole lot that's broken in this world, and there's no way that you can fix everyone or everything. And James is not saying that you should. King Jesus is not looking for you to fix everyone or everything. The world already has a Savior, but Jesus does want to empower you to live a life with compassion that comes from integrity and authenticity. Jesus wants to show you how to align your stated values and your lived values. And that path to spiritual maturity starts with recognizing that gap between what you say matters and what shakes out in reality. What if the most faith-filled thing that you could do this entire week really didn't feel all that religious? What if it's finding a tangible way to live something that you claim matters? Like, what if instead of telling your child you love them this week, you set aside an hour to do something with them that they're all about and made an intentional effort. I'm going to, I'm going to live this. What if instead of telling your spouse, you love them, you surprise them in a way that speaks their love language. What if instead of telling yourself, you wish the homelessness and the housing crisis would change you bought a cup, a cup of coffee for someone experiencing homelessness and spent half an hour getting to know them, not as an issue, but as a person, and realize this is a son, this is a, a daughter, a parent, a veteran, a mechanic, a painter, a teacher, a musician. What if instead of telling yourself you didn't wish abortions happened, you invest in a relationship with a young struggling mother or an expectant mother and made yourself available to support, buoy her up, ease her burden in some way, help life feel hopeful, possible. 
What if instead of telling yourself you're a forgiving person, you anonymously send someone who hurt you a heartfelt gift? Those are just a few ideas. And you can fill in so much there. I want to suggest that this is where the Spirit actually meets us in our active faith, in the middle of these experiences of living what we say we value. No matter if the experience goes well or horribly, it's in that experience of aligning your stated value and your lived value that faith becomes alive and beautiful and changing. And this is the spiritual path to the mountaintops. So what stated value is the Spirit calling you to live this week? Ask the Spirit to give you a specific, tangible action, something you can do this week. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.